You're listening to Profiles in Transformation, the podcast where we hear from inspiring people who have pursued their dream of moving to France. We learn about why they moved, how they overcame the challenges they faced, and what they love and hate about living in France. I hope that hearing their stories can help you to pursue your dreams and maybe your very own transformation. I'm your host, Allison Grant Luness, and I'm here to tell you, my guests followed their dreams and you can follow yours too. It starts today. Welcome to episode 19 of Profiles and Transformation. In this episode, I spoke with Zachary Miller, who moved to France with his French wife for a year in 1990 to write the great American novel, and never left. When they decided to stay in Paris and he discovered he couldn't continue to practice psychology, Zachary pitched a television series on American jazz musicians to the French channel Arte and launched his career as a bilingual film producer helping international filmmakers make movies in France. Welcome, Zachary. Great to have you. So we met two years ago in a before COVID world (laughs) when people were still traveling and doing things in person. I forget we were both part of like some panel where we were talking about like social media and like Facebook groups. Right. Um, We were talking to students from Ohio, actually. Yes. uh, Because I'm from Ohio. I remember that. And I was talking about film. Right. You Okay, so you were talking about film and there was another woman there talking about journalism. And so one of the things that I remember and one of the reasons I reached out to you to do this interview was because I remember you talking about how you came to France and you had been a psychologist. Is that right? Mm -hmm, Yes. And then when you arrived, you weren't able to practice psychology. And so you had a really interesting pivot. And I remember that story. So I wanted to talk to you about it. So can we just get started with what led you to move to France? And then what that move was like for you? Sure. I didn't, I didn't intentionally move to France. (laughs) I tell everyone I was kidnapped by a French woman. What happened was my wife and I were living together in Ohio. And she had to come back to France to complete her teacher training. I was working in Ohio and therapy. I was, we had actually had a residential treatment facility that I ran in Akron, Ohio. And um, a lot of things were happening. I knew she had to go back for a year, but she was planning, we were planning letting her go for a year. We were going to come back. We were going to go to California, live in California and open a practice there. But what happened was my, my mother died earlier that year. And there was a lot of things going on. And I decided, well, I'll go to France for the year. I'll take a sabbatical. So that was going to be the thing. We were only going to stay for one year. So she left a little earlier than I did. I arrived in September of of 1990, actually. It's been a long time. And um, of course, I couldn't do psychology. I couldn't speak French. I couldn't, but aside from that, the licenses don't uh, transfer. In fact, psychological licenses don't transfer from state to state in the U.S. If I have, you have to have an Ohio state license, you have to have a California state license. So of course I couldn't practice psychology here, but I didn't plan on doing anything anyway like that. I was just going to be here for a year and that was that and then we're going to go back to the U.S. (laughs) And I figured in that year, I would write the great American novel. (laughs) As many people do when they come to France. (laughs) And uh, we had a great time. We, we, we actually toured the, where writers had lived and, and worked. 
I went to, well, actually we were around the corner from, from uh, some of the writers, but I went to where Kimingway lived. We were around the corner from, uh, who was it? Oh, anyway, there were so many writers where you could know, know where their homes were. We went to Richard Wright's home where Richard Wright lived and F. Scott Fitzgerald was, was near us. His home was near us. And so I was in the atmosphere and I would go to the typewriters and not computers. I would go to the typewriter and I would write and it was so lonely. And the fact that I was there and I was by myself because she was working most of the days and I didn't know anybody and the actual loneliness of writing, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with that. And so it was like, well, this is not working. <laughs> so I wanted to see other things I could get involved in. And I always loved film and, 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 and screenwriting. And there was a lot of stuff going on in London with uh, filmmakers, independent filmmakers were, were starting up in, in, in London because it was a hub for indie film. And so I heard about that and I started going to London all the time for these sessions of meeting up with the other filmmakers. And that slowly led me into filmmaking. Cool. I think the way that a lot of those writers coped was by drinking a lot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so unless you're willing to make that sacrifice. <laughs> drinking and going to the cafes because actually their apartments were too cold. So they would often write in the cafes for the warmth. Um, right. I go and do too. work in cafes for like to be like in the presence of people. Exactly. That too. That too. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't realize it was because of the heating. I thought it yeah, was, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. <laughs> Later he got better apartments. <laughs> In the beginning he was poor. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like a lot of people who come to France come with a project of I'm going to write my book or my memoir or, but it's really interesting that, so at what point did you, how long were you in France trying out the writing thing before you decided to pivot for fil to film? And then when was the decision made of this isn't going to be just for one year, we're actually going to stay longer? It was gradual. It was, let's stay for another year. <laughs> it's like the, the old saying, like how you boil a frog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was like that. <laughs> Did you feel like a frog being boiled? Did you no, feel like I was, enjoying, we're having... I, I was enjoying it and I thought, well, because I'm, I'm meeting people now. I'm having not only my, my wife's friends from school where she was teaching as a student teacher, our first friends were her other student teachers, but I was going out. I was getting to know the American community. Mm -hmm. I was going to uh, things like the famous Jim Haynes dinners. And I met a lot of people through, through, through Jim. I would just meet random people in streets and bookstores and things. I had a... <laughs> you start and, to get like English radar when you hear... Exactly. Especially if you're not like you're in one of the tourist areas, you're, it's probably tourist. But if you're like in some random place and like I, I heard English at my local park and I turned around and I was like, it's another American. What is she right. doing here? <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. To that point, it became get like a familiar and I, and I liked it and I thought, oh, well, we can stay here some more. We can, it's comfortable. <laughs> yeah, we can, we can <laughs> so it just kind of gradually, it kind of gradually became that kind of situation. And then I got a lot more involved with the, with the group in London. And the, the, the group is, was Raindance, uh, uh, was just Raindance, and be, later became Raindance Film Festival, 
But my first European friend really was, was Elliot Grove, who started Raindance Film Festival. But initially it was just Raindance and it was like a network. And we all were like learning together the indie film business. And he would bring over people from the U.S., like directors and writers, and they would talk to us. And then at some point he said, uh, Zach, why don't you be Raindance Paris? And I said, okay. <laughs> so the people he would bring over for, for, for Raindance in London... I would then set up for have meetings and, and seminars and whatever for Raindance Paris. And so we'd have like two locations for them to come to when they came from the U.S. And I think you had told the story before about, so you had started making films and you made a film for, was it Arte? It was a TV series for, for yeah. Arte. And that was, that was amazing because uh, also some of the first people I met in Paris were American jazz musicians. Right. My, my half-brother had been a jazz musician. Uh, he had played with uh, Dizzy Gillespie and Miles Davis and a bunch oh. of people. Oh, and, and he had, I, 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 I knew about jazz, but I was never, you know, I was never any good <laughs> playing right. any musical yeah. instrument. It's hard. Yeah, I, I played trumpet in, in band, but that's just because they needed bodies. <laughs> just trumpet to your mouth, but don't play. Yeah. I could do the moves. <laughs> But that was, that's mostly what they wanted me for. But, uh, but no, my, my brother was a, a, was a great jazz uh, saxophonist. And so I started going to the jazz clubs here and I got introduced to, to jazz musicians from other people I'd met, in Amer other Americans I'd met here. And uh, I thought, well, maybe I can do a jazz series, sell a jazz series to, to TV. And I noticed that Arte had a lot of jazz programming. It still does, actually. Yeah. Had a lot of jazz programming. And the jazz was seen really in a, in a much more culturally artistic way here than in the States. And um, so I decided I'd put together a proposal to, to do a jazz series. And I talked to some jazz musicians. First person I talked to was Steve Lacey, who was a renowned American jazz musician who had lived in Europe for a long time told him the idea, what I wanted to do. And he was on board. And I said, can you suggest anybody else? <laughs> so he did. He's, one of the people he suggested was Mal Waldron, who was a great jazz pianist. He was uh, Billy Holiday's last piano player. And he was living in Belgium. So I had this too. I had, uh, had Steve Lacey and his group. And I had, uh, and then I contacted Mal and he was in, in, in for it. And, and that was what I needed to start. I knew some people who knew some people <laughs> at Hotel Leticia. And I thought this would be a great setting. And maybe I could get the hotel to, you know, give me a little uh, space there to shoot it for free. Because we're going to shoot some of it in Steve Lacey's apartment. We're going to sh shoot some of it in concert locations. And so I did. They, they gave me the space for free to shoot. Because they had jazz concerts there at the time in one of their uh, rooms. And so they, they gave me the space for free to shoot there. And they actually gave me a, a room for, for Mel Waldron when he came into town for credit, in credits. But anyway, so we had that. I put together uh, this proposal, which is like 26 pages, uh, mostly photos, <laughs> but explaining how I was going to do this shoot and how it was going to be different than the French jazz uh, series that they had, because they were always having, because this was an American doing 
American art form with American jazz musicians. So it's going to be different. And I think that's what sold them. Yeah. And so it was called Jazz Life, American Musician, American Jazz Musicians in New York. I sent it to them and immediately I got a response and it was pre-sold and it was the easiest thing I've ever done. <laughs> it's like, yes, we'll give you this much money, sign the contract. And I, whoa. <laughs> and it was great because it was, it, it happened so fast. We weren't even ready because we had, we had a schedule and plan, but they wanted it right away. Yeah. I actually did change some things in the contract and limit, I limited the number of years they could have it, which was audacious on my part. <laughs> But, but they accepted everything, all of my changes in the contract. I didn't even have a lawyer. And they accepted all my changes in the contract. And we signed on the dotted line. I had the contract. I, I could immediately go to the bank with it and get the, the money to, in advance to, to shoot the series based on my contract with Arte. So that's what we did. Wow. And it was totally easy. We had the locations. I had my team. Um, once you have like your cameraman, once you have your director of photography, he can tell you the other individuals because I didn't know anybody. Right. So I had a cameraman and he was my director of photography. And then he got me the editors. He got me the other crew that I needed. He gave me choices. I could pick out the crew from the people he suggested to me. And so we had our team. And back then you had to have a professional editing studio. You couldn't do anything on computer. We have these big beta cam <laughs> cassettes yeah, no. you had to go to that studio and work with those huge machines and those huge cameras which were extremely expensive you had to rent them you couldn't like buy a camera like i have now and shoot a film with it <laughs> so that was that was interesting we did it we started had mal come in from the only real hazard only real problem we had was and this is kind of a major problem, was I thought I'd almost killed Mel Waldron. My, one of my people had gone to the uh, train station to meet Mel and bring him to Steve Lacey's apartment where we were shooting uh, that day. He went to get him and apparently it wasn't too far. So instead of taking a taxi, he said, you wanna take the Metro? Mel said, okay, whatever. So they took the Metro, but then from the Metro to Steve's was a walk and Mal was a smoker. Mal smoked, like Steve said, Mal smoked like a chimney. <laughs> he couldn't walk long distances. Now we did not know this, Yeah. but he could not walk very long distances because he couldn't breathe. He was- he And it was in Montmartre up all of those stairs. <laughs> it was, thankfully it wasn't there. <laughs> But it was a long walk for Mel, and he collapsed right in front of Steve Lacey's door, the apartment door, out mm -hmm. exterior. He just collapsed, and my friend was freaking out. But but he he called the fire department, and the fire department came, and they they kind of re re rescued, gave him medical attention there. Yeah, and me and the rest of the crew were at lunch. We're at lunch, like around the block somewhere from Steve's place. So he comes running in there and says, tells me what happened. I said, Mel fell out. So what? <laughs> That's okay. The fire department's there. What? So we rushed back and, and Mel's better. And he's, he's in, uh, he's laying in, in, in Steve, Steve Lacey's bedroom. And, and Steve is, is there in, in the living room and we all come back to the living room. And there's a white piano 
in Steve Lacey's uh, living room, beautiful grand piano. And we're all just sitting there and Mel just comes out of the bedroom and he sits down at the piano and he starts playing. And I signal the cameraman to start shooting. Yeah. <laughs> and we just started getting it right there. He was, it was just slated or anything. It was just like, shoot, he's playing, shoot. <laughs> and it was one of the greatest scenes in the, in the series because it was just so uh, spontaneous. And you just, you saw how the piano playing the music revived him. And it was just, it was a beautiful uh, scene that we just shot spontaneously when he just started, came in, sat down, started playing. We, have you seen the, the new Pixar movie, Soul? Oh, well, there's, so it's about a jazz musician who's a pianist. Oh. And there's a similar not some not similar in that he doesn't collapse and (laughs) similar in that like there's one scene where he just like goes and sits down at the piano and he like starts playing and then like kind of starts like floating around in the the zone basically and sort of like just floats out of himself and the music is it's incredible I I highly recommend actually my six-year-old decided shortly after watching that movie that he wants to learn how to play the trombone. So we'll see. Fantastic. That That's great. Happens at some point. Yeah. I love, I love Pixar. It's a great company. And um, um, for animation, there's, I don't think there's anything better. There, you know. Pixar can do no wrong, but that, I mean, that's, that's a particularly beautiful, like the, the music is just so amazing in that movie. I forget it. I'll, I'll catch it. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely recommend it. So how long had you been in France but, but before you started working on this series? And like, how was your, how was your friendship um, proving? Like, what were the, what was the rest of your life like in terms of like, were there administrative challenges? Were you kind of feeling like you were getting used to being here? There weren't really any administrative challenges as there are for most people. <laughs> My wife is French. We right. came to an apartment that was already in her family. Mm-hmm. So we didn't even have to search for an apartment. I mean, the apartment was the apartment. They uh, she's from Angers, and the apartment was in Paris that they that the family would use. And certain brothers and sisters had lived there before. She had lived there before, and it just kind of circulated in the family. So we came back to that apartment. It was free at the time, and uh, we we lived there. And basically, she handled pretty much all of my administrative affairs. So and at that point, not... you probably didn't even, you probably just like, did you just get your carte de séjour once you arrived in France? That you no, not, not right away because we didn't plan on staying. Right. Uh, but l- later, later. But what we did was we, we came there, the apartment's already there. She helps me set up, you know. Now she did not feel it. She didn't have time, nor was she inclined to teach me French. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I think that would, how long had you been married at that point? I feel like that would have. Like, we, we had been living together. We've been oh, living right. together for about five years. Okay. So that, that's a potential relationship killer, probably. <laughs> well, see the thing is she's an English teacher. Mm. So she's, she's a, actually, she was teaching by day, also doing her master's. And that was kind of enough. <laughs> and Big so. Enough. I decided that I, well, we found some good tapes for me. This is, again, 1990. Yes. So we have cassette tapes, beautiful set of cassette tapes and books to learn French. 
So that was kind of a solitary journey for me. We have one son who actually wasn't born until much later. We, we were in, in uh, Paris for, for, for 10 years be, before we had our son. He's 20, 21 now, and he'll be 22 on Sunday. Oh, <laughs> on Halloween. Oh, Halloween, baby. <laughs> yeah, Halloween. <laughs> he'll hear this. He'll, he'll thank you. Yes. So we were, we were living here for 10 years and just basically both advancing both of our careers and, and living the Parisian life. And then 10 years uh, later, we decided to have, have children, just the one. I have a, I'm, I'm an only child. I have a half brother and a half sister, but each of us were, were raised separately. I was the third and last of my father's children and my mother's only son. He's our only son. We thought about having other kids after him, but I like the attention of being an only child. I, I'm the oldest of three. Uh, there are family legends about, I was not happy to have siblings. Like I definitely like did not like sharing the attention. And there are like pictures. My sister is three years younger. My brother is eight years younger. I asked him once when he was, you know, I forget how old he was, but I asked him, would he like a little brother or sister? He was emphatically no. <laughs> I mean, it was just, it was like well thought out. No, <laughs> it, it was it was it, there was no wavering there. <laughs> yeah, my son, my son does ask, and it's not it's not out of the question, but I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how things go. Yeah, but it's kind of one of those things that now now that he's six and he is in school all day and he can he's sort of starting to be autonomous. It's like yeah. Do we really want to go back to the baby stage of yeah. not sleeping at night and yeah. <laughs> diapers and, you know, at this point it's fond memories, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. So your son goes to university in. He went to university in the U S he graduated in May mm-hmm. uh, with uh, two degrees from Boston university, journalism and political science. And now he's working. He got a job right away. Cool. You know, really great because it's a tough situation out there, especially uh, post-COVID. Yeah. But he's working uh, on Meet the Press for NBC. Wonderful. Good yeah. Time. So, what was it like when he was when he was a kid in Paris, English-speaking dad, French-speaking mom, who was also an English teacher? Mm-hmm. How did you approach? Obviously, he must be fluent in both languages. How did you guys Absolutely. approach that and with his education? It's really interesting because. There were, we, we always from the beginning were going to both have him learn, have two native languages. So our position from the beginning was I would speak English to him and she would speak French to him. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, he would start it like, just he would, he would be listening to me in English and listening to her in French. And sometimes he would not be sure if I understood. And so he would translate what mommy had said to <laughs> Our son did that too. We did exactly the same thing. And I, and I was going to mention that he would come in when around two or three years old, when he was first starting to talk and he's always been a very good talker (laughs) and he used to come in and he would tell us the same thing, but he would say it in both languages. Right. Exactly. Even though like, I mean, I, I always a hundred percent of the time almost speak French to him. And like the only exception would be if he, I mean, speak English, sorry. The only exception would be like, you know, if he has a friend over and I'm talking to both sure. of them or saying something that I want the friend to understand. But actually one of his friends, 
they were playing in the park the other day and his little friend comes up to me he says after I said something to Grant and he says so you speak French and uh, you speak English and you speak normal <laughs> like he would always obviously he he knows because he's seen me speak French to other adults but he would always do that translation <laughs> for me right, right. and, and the, the worst thing is like when they're when they're their French is really good and they're 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 two native languages right and so he gets a little bit bigger and he hears me speaking French to other people and you're getting giggle at my accent yeah <laughs> daddy it's funny when you speak French my son does not like it when people there's a couple members of my family in the U.S. who speak a little bit of French or actually a couple of them speak quite well, but they have that American accent and they've never, yeah. or, you know, they've never lived here or they lived here yeah. for a couple of months. And so they don't have that. So he, he does not like it when they try to speak to him. In yeah. It's funny though. There was a the older generation of Americans here. When mm-hmm. I came here, when they had children, they would only speak to them in French because they felt that it was like, they wanted to totally indoctrinated them into the French language. And they thought if they had two, it would be confusing for them, but it's totally different. It's not at all. Right. Well, there's a lot more research on bilingual education now, I think, and like one parent, one language that didn't exist Mm -hmm. or that wasn't widely available maybe to Mm -hmm. regular people. My my older friend, one of his sons, he has two sons, and one of his sons doesn't speak English well at all. Yeah. And I think that that was sad because he's got bilingual parents and he only has that one language because they only spoke French to him because during that time they thought it would be too confusing and they just didn't do it. And I see that yeah. even still with other, so, especially with languages that aren't English. And we mm-hmm. get a lot of, we get a lot of praise. It's so great that he speaks English and what, how wonderful it is to have a second language and things like that. And I just wonder how many teachers are saying those same things to families that speak Arabic at home, or I don't, yeah. I don't know the name I would hope, of many I would think, African languages, but like. I, I think that the, the, the evidence is out there. If they can, if you have two languages in your family, teach them to them yeah. when they're young, it's the easiest. They just soak it up. But uh, I think, I don't think the research was out back then, but I think it's fairly clear now that the kids can really, uh, adapt to two languages at the same time very easily yeah. when they're young well and also now you have like if we want to watch something in english we can put on youtube or disney plus or whatever in english and yeah. we can get that language where whereas 40 years ago it might have been like just the parent speaking that language and and not having multiple speakers so you made this great little docu-series for Arte on jazz music. And where, mm-hmm. did, where did you go after that? What did, what did you well, start doing after you made that? For the longest time, they wanted me to keep doing that. They had like, they said, okay, well, we're going to do jazz and then we're going to do blues. <laughs> so they had, I could still be doing that. But I wanted to not just get caught up in that little niche and just do music docs all the time so I was trying to branch out it was it was actually a mistake <laughs> at the time <laughs> it became harder I wanted to do I wanted to do some like series on on, on writers that were here that was my next project and I just could not get it financed and it was just like hard it was so difficult no one wanted the writer stuff they just wanted the music stuff 
Well, so, to be fair, it's a lot easier to watch musicians practice true. than it is to like watch writers. <laughs> I want to do documentaries on the famous writers that were here, right, yeah. you know, basically. Because I loved writing, I loved writers. And my first thing when I got here was like searching out the, the places where they lived and, and, and wrote and created their, their, their works. But that didn't go over. So I figured, well, I had to create a company. And the easiest thing to do was to create a company, an American company from Ohio, where I had friends who were lawyers who could put together, put together the company for me. And I did that. And I created a company called ICE, International Communications uh, Enterprise. And, and basically, that was the company I first used was my American company. And I started doing other things with other people, different projects that I wasn't directing, but I was like their representative. And so the whole company expanded into being not only a company that I could direct and produce my own stuff, but a company where I could be a line producer or I could be a uh, producer's representative. And so that went for a while. And then after doing that with various other people, I started a French company because I wanted to have access to the perks of being a French company, which all the film grants that you're able to, to get through both France and other companies, other countries that have contract, that have uh, agreements with France. So then I created my company with a partner here, Two Bulls on the Hill Productions, another American, kind of a mentor to the, uh, a lot of the Americans in France knew that I was about to create a European company. At first, I didn't know if it was going to be French. I was thinking about an Irish company, actually, because Ireland had some great kind of perks at that time for European companies and um, actually have Irish heritage. <laughs> because of that, I can act as a line producer for companies that want to shoot in France. And we've done that with Korean companies. We've done that with Egyptians, Egypt. We've done that with Egyptian companies who come here and they're shooting a film or they're shooting a, a TV series or whatnot. Uh, often they'll want to do the finale of a TV series with Paris locations. I was just thinking about The Good Place had, I don't know if you're familiar with that show. I am. They, they're the very end. So that one of the main characters, the story was that he had spent some time in Paris as a student and like went, studied philosophy at the Sorbonne. And that was his backstory at the, in one of the last episodes, I think it was the, the finale. They spent a little bit of time in Paris. Like I want, want to walk around, want to walk around Paris. And actually there was an interesting story about that. I guess they were filming, they were filming over on one of the bridges and it ended up they had to do it really early in the morning before there was traffic and they were only allowed to block it off for a certain amount of time, except that it ended up that it was, who just died? Jacques Chirac's funeral. So I was looking at, to see if they use the same streets and uh, places I used when, when we shot here. We shot a film called uh, After Fall Winter, all in Paris. I produced it, but the writer, director, actor was from New York. And because I'm an American producer, a lot of Americans when they shoot in France want to use an American easier. Yeah. <laughs> he was recommended to me through a, well, an American actress we both knew said, if you're shooting in France, you should contact Zach. So that's how you get some of the business because other people, and when anyone wants to shoot in France, 
they know there's this, at least there's this one American who has a French company. <laughs> Word of mouth. Right, right. Well, that was that was fun shooting here with with an American team. Well, not American team, but with an American talent. Yeah. Was my French team. We had to supply all the crew, mm-hmm. which are all bilingual. Everyone I work with is pretty much bilingual. And when you're line producing, you get them the equipment, you get them the police permits. But so we did the line producing, but I also was a producer in that I kind of affected what, how the thing was going to be shot. He also wrote from here. So I was able to tell him certain things about Paris and living in Paris that helped his writing. One scene was he didn't know about going into a store and first saying bonjour. <laughs> That's a key thing. That's like the first thing I tell anybody <laughs> who comes here. <laughs> so he he had we he didn't know this at all. So he wrote an entire scene based on this idea because, like the typical American, goes in and starts or telling what he wants instead of and so he wrote the scene. So the the, the shopkeeper says. And he starts getting a, getting a little back and forth with that uh, because he doesn't know that. I, I, everyone does, I'm sure. I, well, I've, 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 I've mentioned, I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before. I, it was at a Starbucks and a tourist came in. I don't remember if the tourist was American. I think, I think it was somebody who spoke English. Somebody came in, like was right in front of me, went up and like starts ordering. The guy says, bonjour. And the guy keeps ordering and he says, bonjour. And the guy keeps ordering. And it was like a good six or seven times. And I finally let, I, I leaned forward and I was like, say bonjour to the guy and then he'll take your order. <laughs> it's so funny that like that happens pretty much to every American. Right, right, right. So it was, it was a great scene. It was funny. The woman that he meets, the, the romantic interest is in the store at the same time. He, the, the character falls in love with a French woman. And that's where they actually meet in the store when he's going through this chat with the storekeeper. They start talking to each other in French about rude Americans. <laughs> but, yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> that's funny. Typical. So we had, we included a lot of things like that in the film that he would not have known about. And it, and it made it more authentically French. And we were able to- Yeah, I was going to say, it makes it, makes it a much better story exactly. and a much more- believable um yeah. so it was good we, we won 11 awards for that film and only four festivals we only went to he didn't want to go to a lot of film festivals we only went to four film festivals but we won 11 awards including best picture in iowa of all places <laughs> iowa film festival <laughs> so that was that was great so he had a lot of experiences like that working with other people uh who want to shoot in france and then i've also gone to the u.s and directed and produced a film in in upstate new york Right now, we're, I'm working on a, a film that will shoot next year in Greece that I wrote, and I will both direct and produce. And so there's been like different TV documentaries and different projects. But the, the, the next one is going to be the biggest film of my career. I mean, as far as cost and scope and talent, that is, um, we're scheduling it for next year in Greece. I have a Greek partner. We're looking to shoot in Santorini and and Paros Islands. <laughs> those are, those are, uh, it's just, I love the idea of different projects working with different people. I mean, I have people that I work with here, uh, different teams, right? but sometimes you have like one, some of your crew that you would usually use aren't available. So you have, but we have like a network of people here that I can put together for my crew 
or that I could put together for someone else's crew that's coming to France to shoot. And it's, it's, it's fun. And it's, I probably would not have done this in the U.S. <laughs> so it did lead my life into a different direction for sure. Well, and sometimes I think too that it's almost because the Americans in France community is so small, but when you start meeting with people, like you automatically start making those connections and it's almost like easier to, to break into certain. That's true. I mean, you, you, you meet people and you're like, you meet people probably that you wouldn't meet in the U S because there's this small tightness of the community. Right. And, and the, it's kind of a, a special category. Like also, I, I noticed that when I would go, when I would go back to the States to have meetings, I used to meet with Roger Corman. Roger Corman was like the, the, the king of B-movies. He helped everybody in the business from, from Ron Howard to Jack Nicholson to just everybody in the business. And, and I met him both in London and in a fantasy film festival in Belgium. We just, we got on. But I noticed like whenever I had to go back to the States and I had to meet somebody, I would say, hi, this is Zach, I'm coming from Paris. Maybe I wouldn't, have, if I were living in Los Angeles, I wouldn't have got to meet them for like a month. They would have booked me for like a month. But when I say I'm coming from Paris, oh, oh, great. Zach, we'd love to see you. Come on here, you can, you can be in for a week. Okay, we'll put you down for Monday. <laughs> so that was always cool because you're coming as an American from Paris and you're gonna be there for a limited time. You're not in LA all the time. So let's meet right. with him. <laughs> cool. And I think, tell me about some of the best film festivals that you've been able to, what's well, exciting? I have, until, until the COVID uh, yeah. <laughs> cancellation of the Cannes Film Festival, I had been to every Cannes Film Festival since 1992. Oh. That's a long time. That's a lot of Cannes Film Festivals. <laughs> a lot of Cannes Film Festivals. And so the one the one year everybody missed it. And then we had the we had the online version. And then like last, well, this year, instead of May, it happened in, in, in July, which was very, very different to be in Cannes in July. It was oppressively hot. <laughs> we were in we were in Cannes in July. And no, it was the beginning of August last okay. year. We since we couldn't travel, we did the, the south of France, um, yeah. like everybody else. Right. I, I bet I bet it would have been different. Uh, it, it was. I mean, I've been to a lot of film festivals. Of course, Cannes is 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 the best. You know. Right. I mean, I go to Berlin pretty much every year. I go to Raindance, of course, in, in London often. I'm not there now. It's actually happening right now. <laughs> and then there's I go to the American film market in Santa Monica. On occasion, I've been to the Angers Film Festival. It's where my wife's family is from. That's a very nice festival. It was very intimate, very French. And for me and pretty much for everyone, Cannes is the it's the epitome of film festivals. Right. Yeah. But having gone, like I said, since 92, mm. I know the past, the kind of the glory days when it was a lot more glamorous with the stars. And even though it's still, you still have VIP parties and you still have glamor and everything, there was a certain era of, of Cannes that I don't think exists anymore when you had like a uh, real super Hollywood type glamor. I, I, sat, I sat in a little private 
party across the couch from Lauren Bacall. And, and it was like, I'm here with Lauren Bacall. I'm here with, I'm standing next to all these stars because we would get in VIP parties. We had our techniques to get into VIP parties. <laughs> well, that was going to be my next question is, is what fun VIP parties did you go to? There were so many, there were so many, and it was so good because I had these, uh, some friends who, who like worked at Cannes hmm. and had access to uh, a lot of information and, 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 and invitations that most people didn't have because they worked there. <laughs> they were right. handing out these things. And so I would go with them. I would go with some, uh, this whole elite group of, of us who, who had this information. We would get in tickets. We could take us to all the VIP parties. But the thing is, you, 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 there was a point in time where I was just focusing on going to parties instead of actually doing business. <laughs> there were some great events and there was a glamour that existed say in the 90s that kind of doesn't anymore the, the big hollywood stars who were big then but they were also tony curtis walking down this ballroom uh stairs in the hotel majestic with the uh, two starlets on his arms you know that kind of and they these were often these things were staged for for the publicity um the, the stars would show up and they would act like superstars and they would be there for the press and the paparazzi to take photos of them. They did, of course. It was, it, it was really looked luxurious and glamorous. That's what they wanted to present. So it was those old times that were, that were the special, and it was special too, because it was new to me. Right. So if someone were moving to France today and wanting to sort of get into that, get into the entertainment industry or whether that's music or film or anything like that, you know, what, what advice would you give them if they, were, if they were just starting out in those areas? Are there places where it would be easy for some, well, it would be good for someone to go to make those kinds of connections? Well, see, the thing is, it's so much easier now. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one has an excuse anymore. Right. I mean, really, it's with, with technology and the internet, it's just no excuse. I mean, if you really want to do it, you have the energy and the will and the consistency to do the work. There, there's only your, your 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 talent is the only thing that'll hold you back, because you can make a film with an iPhone. Literally, right. make a film with an iPhone and your computer, and so you don't have the barriers that we had, because you had to have a certain amount of money. You had to have a deal with an RK or somebody just to afford to buy the equipment or rent the equipment. You didn't buy any equipment. Right. <laughs> you had to be at least that business entrepreneurial savvy to, to get a deal so you could rent the equipment and shoot something. But now you can shoot something with the stuff you have at home. If you have the talent to, to, to shoot and edit, or if you have friends who can shoot and edit and you have a team that can put something together, but then you of course have to sell it and market it. Right. But it's just so much easier now, but you have to know how the business works and you have to know who to contact and so on and so forth like that. But that's easily attainable knowledge. And you have things online as well as the classes that Raindance still teaches, both not only in Paris and 
London anymore, but around the world. Yeah. Rain dance Toronto and rain dance LA and rain dance everywhere. And you have all these kind of um, groups online that'll teach you uh, certain things about not only the techniques and technology, but also about the actual film business, which is key because a lot of times people go through four years of film school and they don't know anything about the actual film business. They spend their four years looking at old films and, and learning about film theory and so on, which is all great, good, it's all good. But ultimately you need to know the business. And right. a lot of the universities don't teach the business to film. And that's, I mean, honestly, you can say that about most careers. I mean, <laughs> yeah. like you go to school for literature, you're reading, or you don't necessarily learn learn the business of publishing. You go to school for exactly. just to actually yeah. learn how to sell yourself and pitch your stories, actually work in mm-hmm. in that world. And I mean, no matter what you do, you have to market yourself now. He did. He got his film degree at USC and um, start teaching at um, UNLV, uh, University of uh, Nevada at Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And he's a film instructor, but, and had, was a film instructor at that time. And we had met and became friends and he would come to Cannes often. He took like the rain dance course <laughs> on film business, basically. And yeah. he said he learned more about film business in like those uh, long weekend than he ever did at USC. Because USC doesn't, at that time, I have no idea how it is now, yeah. but at the time they didn't teach you know, right. A lot of time, like acad- academic work and business is separated and you don't necessarily yeah. know how to, there isn't necessarily an awareness of other career paths beyond sure. like teaching. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So that's the kind of thing that, that, that people would need to know. But again, there is so much available, different networks. Stage 32 is one network that is started by a friend of mine in L.A., Actually, I think it was about 10 years ago because he just had his he just wrote to me about an anniversary. That's an online thing, but you learn a lot from there. And there are all kinds of resources online that you can learn what you need to learn and you can get your projects out there. You can find out everybody you need to know in the business. You can contact through Internet Movie Database. Yeah. Which is so it's just so much easier now. And it's just a matter of doing the work, having the talent and doing the work. (laughs) I think that's good advice for pretty much anything. (laughs) Are you ready to begin taking steps towards your own transformation and begin planning your move to France? I'm Alison Grant-Luness, and I've been helping people move to France since 2012. I'd love to hear about your big dreams and identify what kind of support you need to make your dream of moving to France a reality. If you want to know how you can begin the transformation process today, request a free 30-minute transformation clarity call at yourfransformation.com forward slash free slash call. So just a couple of questions that I like to ask everybody sort of specific to France. Like what's your favorite thing about, about France, about living in France? And what is your least favorite thing that still annoys you after 30 plus years? Ah, hmm, gee. Well, there's so many favorite things. Uh, it's just the atmosphere of being here. I always tell people it's extremely creative atmosphere yeah. to live in France. People, uh, like, especially for me, this season, I like the fall. I mean, I like the summer and the spring. It's every, but I love the fall because the fall is kind of, it's a little dark. It's a little, the atmosphere is a little cooler, but it's great for creativity. 
yeah. to walk around France and to have uh, the setting of Paris for creativity. I think there's something special about that. Also, it's very, I don't know, soothing and relaxing to be in a big city, but also a big city that you don't have the uh, stresses that you have in a typical American big city. Is that understandable? <laughs> yeah, well, can you give me an example of that? Like what's, what stresses um, are not here? Well, it's just like it's first, you can talk about crime, you can talk about any kind of thing like that. You're going to have uh, way different statistics <laughs> on, on, on crime and, and, and violence in, 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 say, Paris versus New York or any other big American city. So a lot of times people will, will relate to that kind of aspect of it. But just the rhythm of a city is different. Paris goes slower. Most Americans, when they come to Paris, my, myself included, I'm much more New York. <laughs> and you, you, Paris forces you to slow down a little bit and, and, and basically smell the roses. <laughs> so that's, that's a, one of the things that you notice when you're here for a while. It's just like everything, the pace slows down and the, it's calmer, it's more soothing, it's, it's, it's more livable uh, for a big city than a lot of other big cities are. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't places like that. I love, well, I lived in San Francisco. I love San Francisco mm. and Boston. Both of those cities are great. And I've recently discovered how if you live in certain sections of Washington, D.C., it's really nice too. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, but typically, Miles Davis said, said it best. He says, when he was in Paris, when he was, the time he actually lived here for a while, he says, thing I like about Paris is you don't have to watch your back. <laughs> That's a Miles Davis quote. <laughs> and I don't know if it's translatable to now, but it's still a more yeah. calm place to live. And I mean, the other thing that you mentioned that the thing that's particularly great about fall is that when you go, there's like the back to school, there's like the rentrée littéraire, yes, there's all yes. of this like new cultural stuff that comes out. There are all of these like literary and cultural events that start happening again. And I think yeah. there's also, because people don't work 60 hours a week or 80 hours yeah, a week, exactly. like in New York or LA or yeah. wherever, people yeah. actually have time to consume those cultural you know, right. things that come out. So there's a lot more. Exactly. Like, my, my wife's a teacher, okay? Mm -hmm. And so she could teach in the university, but she she decided she'd prefer to stay teaching, uh, you know, what we call Lisi High School, you know. So basically, she's teaching there, and they're on a two week vacation. And I'm like, didn't school just start? <laughs> Every year, it's like, wow, you guys. I'm always amazed at how much vacation they get. And and my sister, my half sister, was a teacher. Uh, for her whole career in, in the U.S. And it's a, it's a literally, it's more than an, a, a nine to five gig because they have the extracurricular activities and the clubs and stuff. And in addition to the writing of grading papers and stuff, but here with the teaching, it's like you go in for your three hours of class one day and your two hours of class the other day. And it's not a full day thing. I mean, right. they, build in, they build in the correction time and all of that in yeah. full-time job. Exactly. Thing. Yeah, exactly. And so that's uh, 
very much more relaxed if you're going to be a teacher. I mean, it's very much more relaxed to be a teacher here than it is to be in a, a public school system in the States. Yeah, isn't, but, I think full-time teaching is what, 18 hours? Yeah, or less. So, it's actually yeah. less. The, the higher your degree, my, my, my wife has her doctorate. Mm-hmm. So the more, and, and she's also agrogy. So that's you pass the certain test. Yeah. If you have both, you actually teach less. The more qualified you are, the less you have to Yes, work. exactly. You, you, you teach less and you make more money. Deal. So it's a good deal. Well, he was in public school mm-hmm. for the elementary part. And then he went to international school yeah. for the junior high school, high school part. After the first, well, it's like six, well, what we would call junior high school and high school. After the first year, I decided I would run for the president of the English section of the parents. So I was the parents uh, section leader for the English section. And that was so much fun because we was, it's like a, it's Balzac, Balzac. Yep. Okay. Well, he went to Balzac. We actually live very close to there. Near, near, near. Yep. And he went to Balzac International School. And I was the president of the English section for five or six years. <laughs> And uh, we had so many things to plan for during those during those years. And I, since a lot of this is aimed at French people, bringing up Americans who who come to France, I would encourage parents to look into the international schools because they can be very interesting, both if they stay here or if the kids want to go to the U.S. Because the one thing that I found out, well, I didn't know that when I when we started. But it's amazing when you take the back and the international back, he was able to get almost a full year of credits when he started at Boston University. So, so it, it's almost like AP credits. It is exactly. It, it, it came to the, it came to, at some, at some universities, they give you more at some universities, they give you a little bit less, but yeah. now Boston University wasn't the one that would, would have given him the most credits. Right. for his for his French classes but it gave him almost a full year of credits we're definitely mm-hmm. we're definitely considering international school the sooner the better he's been in public school the first couple of years which was which was good for the first three and now that he's in elementary school I'm not I'm not loving it anymore <laughs> for various reasons but is that event at the American church still happening where they have the internet where they have all the international schools and stuff well, I, think I, was- know, I know they had it like the year before covid uh-huh. they had it in 2019 they didn't have it last year because of covid obviously and i don't yeah. know i don't know if they're doing it this year or if they're doing it virtually there's mm. also there's the is it aawe uh, yes yes absolutely. Uh, that have their guide mm-hmm. to education in france i'm hoping to mm-hmm. be able to interview somebody from there as well for for colleges and things there there's often they're a good source of information for like college admissions and like taking mm-hmm. the sat and all of that stuff in france they have a great guide as well but what, what's good about the international schools is they have like classes in french and classes in english and they have a good mix. If you get the right school, they have a good mix. And uh, you're totally in a bilingual environment. And it's advantageous, I think, whether you go to America or whether you stay in France or, 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 or go to the UK or wherever. What is your least favorite thing about living in France that's still in um, The bureaucracy. I, I think that would be everyone. Like you said, 
I haven't had to deal with it that much personally, well, in initially at least, because like everything was taken care of for me. But I mean, you do have more uh, and slower bureaucracy here. Again, I don't have to deal with it as much as a lot of people do. Yeah. But it is a thing that needs to be fixed. <laughs> I had to, you know, create my French company. And um, that, that I, I had like other French people helping me with that. So it wasn't that big of a deal, but it can be a pain. And uh, a lot of things I haven't done, I haven't needed to do. I work from home. I, I have people that work for me that, that, can take care of a lot of stuff. Like I, like when we have police permits to get or something, I have people that do that. I don't have to do that myself, yeah. you know, but there, there are so many things that I know that people go through here that just to come and live here that are, are troublesome, <laughs> even though it didn't affect us when we initially moved here. What's your favorite thing about going back to visit the States and what annoys you when you go back? Well, just seeing everybody, basically when you go back to the States, it's a lot to, to see friends and family. But I, I was back this summer. I was um, actually, I was in the US from August 3rd to mid September. Primarily, I went back to help my son move into his apartment in DC. We, 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 found, a, we found an apartment for him online. He, he chose this great place in, 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 in uh, Capitol Hill neighborhood. And we were very surprised and happy to see it was even better than it was on the photos and videos. Wow. <laughs> really? And so you go back to the States and there are certain things that are extremely convenient. And that's the one thing you notice. I mean, like, I like going in a, a big supermarket and just getting everything without having to go to like, one store for one thing and another store for another thing. And being able to get all kinds of things from the drugstore in a big supermarket, you know, yeah. <laughs> which you really can't do here. Certain things you have to go to the actual pharmacy for that would not be in a supermarket. So it's a little convenience, things like that. It's extremely convenient to, to be in America for certain things. I was in my hometown of Akron, Ohio, and I was always love to go and see the old neighborhood and see how it's changed. That's always a interesting thing to do. This travel, I actually did travel on the Greyhound bus while in the States. I went from D.C. to my hometown in Akron on a Greyhound bus because I used to love to do that when I was young. We would always like take a bus up to New York or whatever overnight. That's uh, <laughs> less interesting than it was before. Yeah, I did that <laughs> anyway. all the time. I'm from Boston originally and I went uh -huh. to school in New York and so I did the Greyhound bus like all the yeah. time that's that's something I don't miss well the thing is this time it wasn't that fun <laughs> well even in college like there was a point at which I was like you know what Amtrak it's it was like two yeah. or three times as much but like I think it's like $50 in the northeast corridor or it was at the time yeah. I haven't looked in in years and years Oh, I love Amtrak. We, we actually, years ago, I don't know, oh, as a family, we, we spent the summer in the States and we took an Amtrak around the country. Oh, wow. From like east to west, like a big circle. <laughs> well, I've, I've seen those maps like online where it's like, this is how you take the, Am the Amtrak to visit the whole country and like visit yeah. all of the major all the major tourist things that you can do on that trip. That was great. It was really fun. And you get 
more out of ground travel, stopping and getting out and staying in a little, little these little Western places. We went, we stopped and visited the Grand Canyon, for example, stopped and visited friends in LA, stopped and visited friends in Seattle. And it was just interesting because you're actually seeing how big the country is yeah. when you're traveling it on the ground. <laughs> That was fun. So I actually had to go around different places. Yeah. I flew from uh, Akron to, to to Nashville. I visited a friend in Nashville for six days, and then went and shot my documentary in Knoxville. But uh, some of the things you don't want to you do before, like the bus travel, you know, okay, that was trying to relive that kind of experience. It wasn't that fun this time. Yeah. And, but it was something you do because they used to do that in America. Yeah. When you go back to visit the U.S., are there ways that you feel like you're you're like too French? For- you can you can feel like um, more uncomfortable in in certain places. It's like it's a culture. It's more of a cultural shock. It's yeah. not about. It's like you've lived in a certain place for a long time, and then you're back in the place. I've lived more in this in 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 France than I have in the U.S. at this point. Yeah. So there's more of my my life <laughs> in Paris than anywhere else. Same. I mean, my whole adult life after graduating college has been in, in France, mo- in or around Paris. And yeah. like, sometimes I go back and I'm like, wait, why, why is it like, how does this work here? <laughs> well, for me, it was just like certain places were a cultural shock. Yeah. Knoxville, Tennessee yeah. was kind of a cultural shock. It was just like... It was just it was so different than actually just being even in Washington, D.C. So it was just that would have been a that probably would have been a cultural shock for me when I lived in Ohio. Right. <laughs> I mean, I, I I haven't really visited much of the of the American South. And mm-hmm. that's one of that's like the next tourist thing that I want to do is probably like mm-hmm. I've never been to Nashville. I used to love country mm-hmm. music. I would love to mm-hmm. go there. But see, also, Nashville is very different from Knoxville. Oh, I it's like. I am totally comfortable in, in Nashville. I probably wouldn't want to live there so much. I mean, I love Boston. I could live in Boston. I could go back to your your city in, in, in a minute. Yeah, I think I can't imagine, like, if, if I were to ever go back to live in the States, it would be Boston or maybe New York. I can't see myself living anywhere else. Now, a couple of years ago, uh, my, my son had an internship at uh, CNBC in, in, in New Jersey. And so I found uh, a house for us for the whole summer in New Jersey. And I hadn't lived like in the States, like in a house for a couple of months. It's such a long time. And I really enjoyed it. I mean, I was like living um, like I lived in Ohio in a house with a yard and (laughs) going to the supermarket, (laughs) everything. Yeah. And that was really fantastic. I, I really, I love that experience to, to do that again, which is different when you just come to a place and you rent uh, an Airbnb or you stay in a hotel for right. a few weeks. Or an know. apartment and you don't have a yeah. yard and you're not near a park. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what, I mean, especially this summer, we always stay with my parents when we go and they have the house with the yard. It's great. Like now that my son is six, like he can just go out in the backyard and play and I mean, he would just go out there and just hang out in the yard and like yeah. lay in the grass. And we were, I was talking about it with my mom, like how nice it is for him to just be able to go outside mm-hmm. and 
and play. I just got a couple more like quick questions that uh-huh. I'd like to ask. What's your favorite French meal, treat, wine, cheese? Like what do you go to? When, what's your go-to at a French restaurant or a pastry shop or a cheese shop? Oh, well, I like mild cheeses. Everybody in the family knows I like mild cheeses. They don't give me the cheeses that are really smelly. <laughs> the thing is, for, for us, we go to my, my wife's family's uh, home for vacation, for Christmas and summer vacation, reunions, everything. So we go to have the great big grand French meals at Christmas time to Angers. And there's like the settings of all the French meals you have several course meal over maybe two hours <laughs> and, and those are those are always great I only two hours you're getting off easy <laughs> exactly <laughs> well the wedding meals are longer but the thing is I have I didn't eat I didn't eat oysters before moving to France yeah so that has become a nice ritual when I have those kind of meals and I have the oysters and everything what I which I never tried when I was living in the States, but I still have my same taste, but it's just, it's, it's just made a different way. I still, I'm a meat eater. I love steak. Yeah. Can't go wrong with steak. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's just cooked in a different way. It's just made with different, different things, but no, we have some great restaurants in, in this area. And we're often going to this restaurant um, that also has music it's called Shea Christophe. It's in uh, my area in the 17th in Batignol, and they have uh, music on the weekends. And, and it's kind of a steakhouse, actually, <laughs> a French steakhouse. <laughs> and it's great to go there and have a great meal and to hear often American musicians, jazz and R&B and, and pop at this restaurant. When you're in France, of course, you, you have a lot of wine and everything. I, I, I do prefer red wines and I, I I I it's also supposed to be healthier for you. So I said, oh I'm drinking red wine, yeah. so it's healthy. <laughs> so I have some favorite places, but a lot of them are in the neighborhood because we have a great neighborhood. Right. And it's always great to be able to go somewhere, have a nice meal, see hear music, whatever, and then just walk back to your apartment and not have to get on the metro. And or then you- talking about food, you can't forget the bakeries. The bakeries yeah. are amazing the baked goods and I, we the first apartment we lived over a bakery Ooh, and we'd have the dangerous. aroma of the bakery every day now my wife got tired of it I never got tired of it <laughs> how do you get tired of a bakery <laughs> she thinks you know the, the the sweet smell all the time was yeah. too much for her yeah. um but not me <laughs> and I still do often get that when I go to a bakery the only failing I think of French bakeries some of them try to make donuts and they just can't. No, no. <laughs> I have never yet had a good donut in France. No. I love I love a good, like a, a good donut when I go, there's a donut place when we go back to the States that's near, mm. that's near my aunt's yeah. place by the beach. And oh my well, God. Well, help but run into a Krispy Kreme or a Dunkin' Donuts. That was my first job, Dunkin' Donuts. Really? I grew up not too far from the original Dunkin' Donuts. There was a Krispy Kreme across from my junior high school. Oh, Krispy Kreme was very briefly in Massachusetts, but they, they like, it was like they expanded too fast and had to pull out. And okay, especially because Dunkin' Donuts is too entrenched, like they couldn't, Mm. they couldn't capture that market. Okay. You can't mess with with the Bostonian donkeys. (laughs) 
<laughs> what would you recommend if somebody were coming to visit Paris and what would you recommend they they see that's sort of like off the beaten path that might not necessarily be in uh, the tour books? That's a very good question. Really, these are just parts of Paris that are not touristy that people should go to. Like my neighborhood, for instance, isn't very touristy, but there are a lot of interesting things here that people don't know about. I mean, they don't know that expressionism developed here around the corner. Right. I mean, there was a cafe literally around the corner from me where it all began, where all the artists would meet and talk about this new school of painting, which was originally before it was, you know, it was the Ecole de Batignol. And they developed it and it became expressionism. But there, there's so many little neighborhoods that are would be interesting to people if they were going there yeah. rather than the places everyone goes to. Right. And you can find them in, in the books, but there, there's nothing, I mean, there's nothing like touristy there, but right. those are the places you should go to to see where actual people live. <laughs> and, right, like what real Paris is like. And you can even just exactly. walk around a neighborhood and just there are plaques on all of these buildings. Exactly. Like so-and-so lived here and this is where Impressionism was created. And like, yeah. you can almost miss them. And yet- Exactly, it's true. Like <laughs> major major literary movement of the 20th century originated in this cafe. And yeah, like, yeah. yeah a little plaque on the wall. <laughs> the other thing is good. It's like, uh, like I said, what we did was we, because uh, I was interested in writing and writers, we would go to where the writers lived. And those yeah. are not really, where Hemingway's apartment is still there, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Henry Miller, in his book, Quiet Days and Clichy, mm. you get a lot of information from the, from the actual novels about where they were and where they lived. And there are some beautiful old photographs of areas, and you can go to those areas that are, and look how they are now and how they were then. Yeah. And you can sometimes in the bars or the restaurants, they'll have, uh, you know, huge old photographs of that same area a hundred years ago or whatever. Yeah, that's great. Okay. So final, final question. If somebody mm-hmm. were thinking about moving to France, what, what advice would you give them? Oh, pretty much just do your research, find out about the neighborhoods, find out like what you'd like, like mm-hmm. the first neighborhood we lived in was very uh, it was right Avenue de Terre, and it was very huge, wide streets, and it was like businesses everywhere. And then moving to this neighborhood, which was like a residential neighborhood, it was like moving to a different country. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to find out like what kind of neighborhood you want to live in. And to do that, you need to like research the what the neighborhoods are like, because they can be widely varied. And it's going to depend on like uh, what you're what you're looking for. If you're a couple with kids, or with if you're a young professional that's leading a single life and want to be close to the places to go out and party, you figure out what you like and figure out which neighborhoods accommodate what you like. Cool. You're very welcome. It was great talking to you. It was great talking to you too, and I'll look forward to seeing some of your projects in the future. I'll look for uh, my next feature film is yeah. uh, Tennessee Honey. It's an action spy thriller, female-led hero. And uh, that will be shooting in, in Greece next year. Thanks for listening to this episode of Profiles in Transformation with Alison Grant-Luness. 
If you liked this episode, please like, subscribe, and share on social media. I'll see you next time for a new episode. And in the meantime, I hope we've inspired you today to pursue your dreams, no matter how big or small. Remember, the way you bring your own dreams into reality is by believing in yourself and taking small steps towards your goal. Start today, start now, and a bientôt.